Please be seated. So it was my first week of being the priest in charge of Grace Episcopal Church in Medford, Massachusetts. I was 30 years old. I was the second youngest priest to be in charge of a congregation in the largest diocese in the United States. My wife was the youngest. (laughs) That week, the Medford transcript, the local paper, it ran a front page story above the fold about my coming to the church. There was my smiling face on the front page, me in the line at a potluck lunch that greeted me on my first Sunday. I was told that there was an elderly parishioner, longtime parishioner I'd never met, who was dying at the local hospital, Medford's Lawrence Memorial Hospital. So I shot off to the hospital in order to do the rites for someone who's about to die. His name was Arthur Jones. And on arriving to Medford's Lawrence Memorial Hospital, I was greeted at the front desk with, hello, Father Evans, welcome. And I thought, they know who I am. And there the paper was on the counter with my picture above the fold. I thought I had arrived. So I go up to the room, I go in to do my priestly duties, and I find a sleeping elderly man. And I pulled out my prayer book and I began to say the prayers for someone at the time of death. They're some of the most profound and beautiful prayers in our prayer book. We rarely see them. It's only at these times we pray them. And the rhythm of the prayers, I felt God's power. And people began to come in from the hallway as I prayed, some nurses and nurses' aides. At the end of the prayers, I took out my oil and I anointed this man, and I felt, I am doing exactly the right thing right now. Here I am in the presence of God, being God's vehicle, blessing this dying man. And as I got to the end of the prayers, and I said amen, I heard a voice from one of the people gathered there. Sir! And I looked up, and on the whiteboard above above the bed was the name Marv Rosenberg. (laughs) And the voice continued, Sir, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, that's not the right person. Getting it wrong, being wrong. What does it feel like to be wrong? What does it feel like to be wrong? Anyone? What's that? Crappy, what else? (laughs) Embarrassing, surprising, embarrassing, stupid. So those are all great answers, but I want to I wanna make a suggestion that maybe you're not answering the question I asked, because I asked, 
what does it like, feel like to be wrong, and you're actually saying what it feels like to realize that you're wrong. One author says that the feeling of being wrong is like in Looney Tunes when, when Wiley Coyote runs off that cliff and nothing's below him. He doesn't know that anything's wrong until he looks down. I'd argue that the feeling of being wrong actually is a lot like the feeling of being right. It's just that you don't know it. Being wrong. So today we have a story in our, in our first lesson about someone who was wrong, really wrong. An important person for all of us here at St. Paul's, Saul. And the story is about the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, one of, one of the early apostles of Jesus, some people say the first deacon, who is brought out into the yards and stoned. Literally, people throw stones at him until he dies. And as the lesson tells us, it says, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then the next verse, which you didn't get read to you, is, um, and Saul approved of their killing. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered, scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Saul, later who would become Paul, our patron saint. What must have it felt like to have been like Saul that day? It probably felt great. He probably thought he was doing exactly the right thing. Everything that his religion, his friends, had told him to do. That day, Saul probably felt that what he was doing was right. Saul probably felt that he was correct. There's actually a lot of study of the phenomenon, phenomenon of people who think they're doing the right thing but are actually incorrect. There's a term that's used, it's called error blindness. Error blindness. And it's, it's something that people who study many different phenomena are interested in. It comes up in the study of medical errors, airplane crashes, how 200 million gallons of oil could be dumped in the Gulf of Mexico, how Wall Street traders can lead to the collapse of the global economy, how countless wars can begin, how the stoning of Stephen could happen, or how a young Episcopal priest could anoint a sleeping Jewish man. 
error blindness. It's a way that people miss the cues around them. They miss all of the signals that something isn't right. And sometimes it's caused by training. Sometimes it's caused by culture. Sometimes it's caused by ideology. And sometimes it's caused by religion. Getting it wrong. In the 16th century, Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am. But in the Christian tradition, 1,200 years earlier, in the 4th century, St. Augustine said, I'm going to get the Latin wrong, Fellor ergo sum, I err, therefore I am. I err, therefore I am. Augustine knew about our infinite capacity to screw up. And it wasn't just a thing that needed to be corrected or needed to be eradicated, but it's actually essential to what it means to be human. To not get it right. To not have the complete picture. Augustine said, to be human is to be fallible, to make mistakes, to not get it right. God is the only one who is perfect. And we're all here together trying to figure it out. A couple of months ago, I saw a bumper sticker, and I loved it so much, I got it, went out and got it. I had my wife find it. It's on both of our cars now. It says, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> don't believe everything you think. What would it be like to live that way? What would it be like? Not assuming that we have the answers, that we're correct or we have it right. To live that in each moment, maybe we have the capacity to get it wrong. What would it be like to talk about politics over the dinner table? What would it be like to connect over diversity and difference? What would a diplomatic negotiation look like? How about war? How often would that happen? Living like that, I would say, is actually living in a place, a place that our faith has a lot to say about. It's living in a place of awe or wonder. Maybe a place of faith. The awe and wonder that you sense when you step out and look up at that dark sky and can see all of the stars. Or when you are there when a child is born or you see a creek beginning to run out of a melting snow pile or in the middle of a Bach cantata. That awe and that wonder about the infinite possibilities out there, being drawn to the place where we don't need to have all the answers, to have figured it all out. 
moving from a place of certainty to a place of faith. Again and again, God is inviting us to that place, that place of wonder, that place of doubt, that place where together we can shrug and say, I wonder about that. I imagine. Maybe, maybe I'm completely wrong. Amen.